0: Welcome to the Portugal Street Philosophy Podcast, the official podcast of the LSE Philosophy Society. I'm your host, Eric Chen. In each episode, we take an important philosophical question and explore our best current attempts to answer it. For this episode, our question is What is the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics? And our guide to the topic is Professor Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll is a research professor of physics at Caltech and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. His research focuses on foundational questions in quantum mechanics, space time, cosmology, emergence, entropy, and complexity occasionally touching on issues of dark matter, dark energy, symmetry, and the origin of the universe. Professor Carroll is the author of numerous books, including From Eternity to Here, Particle at the End of the Universe, and The Big Picture. His latest bestseller, Something Deeply Hidden, is about the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. He's also the host of the fantastic Mindscape podcast, which all of our listeners should check out. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Sean Carroll.
1: Sure. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: So the question we're trying to answer is, what is the best interpretation of quantum mechanics. People who have a bit of familiarity of physics might have the impression that physics is about, there's equations, there's solutions, there's right answers, there's wrong answers. Um, And quantum mechanics is like, supposed to be the best theory we have of reality. So why does it suddenly make sense to start talking about interpretations of this theory?
1: Well, that's a very good. That's exactly the right question uh, to start with, because other theories don't really need anything you would call interpretation, right? I mean, you can find them, but there's not a lot of work on interpretations of relativity or interpretations of Newtonian mechanics or anything like that. There's a little bit, but okay, it's not a major burgeoning field like quantum mechanics. And the major reason why is that quantum mechanics in the form where we teach it to our students, Because we're not quite sure what the final form is supposed to be, that's part of the part of the problem, but in the form where we teach it, uh, it has a role right there in the rules for what happens when you observe a system, when you measure it, okay? And no other theory of physics has that. In general relativity or Maxwell's electromagnetism or whatever, There's the world, and you can measure whatever you want about it. I mean, you might think that maybe you disturb it when you measure it, but in principle, you could just measure it very gently, very carefully, and you could see the world as it is. In quantum mechanics, there's one set of rules for how the world behaves when we're not looking at it, and then there's an entirely different set of rules for when you make an observation. Uh, you might have heard that when you measure a quantum system, you can't predict exactly what outcome you're going to get. There's a probability for getting different outcomes. So the rules for when you're not looking at it are completely deterministic and and smooth and predictable. But then when you look at it, you can't quite know what's going to happen with 100% certainty. And so why is that? What do you mean? What, what is an observation supposed to be? What counts as an observation? You know, is that really supposed to be the kind of thing that you find in a fundamental theory of physics? All of these are questions that full-grown physicists debate about all the time. That's why we need to talk about interpretations of quantum mechanics.
0: Okay, um, that makes sense. And the interpretation is, over, is the key debate over what this notion of measurement is and how we're going to resolve this problem.
1: I actually like to divide it into two different debates or two different questions, let's put it that way. Um, You know, in quantum mechanics, there's this whole, I'm gonna assume that the audience is not an expert in quantum mechanics already. I hope that that is okay. (laughs) That's a safe
0: assumption, yeah.
1: Right but they may have heard that there's something about waves and particles, right? Is the electron really a wave or a particle? Is the photon really a wave or a particle? And there's this fuzzy answer where, you know, things are wave-like in some circumstances and particle-like in other circumstances. So the answer is, things are waves. That's the answer, whether it's an electron or a photon or whatever. Waves seem to be, in some generalized abstract mathematical sense, what the world is made of. But what we see when we look at certain things is particles, Okay, That's the the difficulty, that an electron, when we're not looking at it, is described by what we call a wave function. A wave function is sort of a dumb name for the most important thing in in physics. Uh, And basically, it's kind of wave-like. There's subtleties, which we don't need to get into right now. But it's kind of like a wave that is like a cloud, right, where it's sort of dense in some places and very dispersed and dilute in other places. And when you observe the electron, you don't see that. You you describe it that way as a wave function when you're not looking at it. And then when you observe it, you see a particle somewhere, even though that's not how you describe it when you're not looking at it. And the relationship between the two is that where the wave function is big, it's more probable. You will see the particle there, and where the wave function is small, it's less probable. So there's two problems. One is, The measurement problem, which is sort of what we just talked about, like what do you mean by the word observe or measure? When does it happen? What counts as it? And all of these things, by the way, have answers. I don't want to say they're ineffably mysterious, but we don't agree on what the answers are. That's the problem. So there's the measurement problem. Then there's also the reality problem. What I mean by that is, what is the world according to quantum mechanics? We all use this thing called the wave function. But does the wave function actually mirror reality exactly? Or does it need to be abetted by other things, other variables, other dynamical quantities? Or does it have nothing to do with reality? Is it just a tool that we use to make observational predictions? And all of these are also on the table. So these are the two problems in my mind that any good formulation of quantum mechanics needs to address. What do you mean by a measurement? What happens under that? And what is the real world? What is the thing that physics is supposed to be describing?
0: Okay, um, that makes sense. And you mentioned there's two sets of rules when one set for when we're not looking and there's this wave function and when we're looking, uh, maybe it's electron, we, we end up seeing a particle instead of a wave. Right. Could you spell out in a bit more detail about kind of precisely what these rules are and what the two, uh, what the two sets of rules are for what we're looking and we're not looking, just so we have a better picture of what we have to imagine when we go forward and think about various interpretations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can try, but this is one of the things we don't agree on. So this is, we're already very, very quickly bumping up into uh, areas where physicists will get into fights with each other, and not to mention with philosophers and people on the street. So, um, you know, let's take uh, uh, the simplest example of a quantum mechanical system is a single spinning particle, okay? So what you mean by that is that like the Earth is spinning, the sun is spinning, et cetera. It turns out that elementary particles, some of them, have an intrinsic amount of spin. They're necessarily spinning by a certain amount. What you don't know is the direction in which they're spinning. So for something like an electron, there's only two possibilities. If you measure the spin, when you measure it, you measure it along a certain axis. So you say, how fast is it spinning relative to the z-axis, or the x-axis, or the y-axis, or whatever you want? So it turns out, experimentally, when you ask that question, uh, you only ever get two possible answers. Either it's spinning clockwise or it's spinning counterclockwise, okay? It's never spinning halfway in between. That's part of the quantumness of quantum mechanics, okay? Those are the only possible observational outcomes. But when you're not looking at it, according to the rules of quantum mechanics, the electron is described as a superposition. The wave function of the electron, if you like, is a combination of both. It's neither, it's it's not that the electron was spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, you just don't know. It's that it really is a combination of both, even though when you measure it, you will only ever see one or the other. And the relationship again is that the wave function says what the probability is going to be, that you're gonna measure it uh, spinning clockwise or spinning counterclockwise. And this is literally something we could do an experiment to show, and then you can do sort of different experiments with different axes and so forth. And it all fits together quite nicely as long as you don't press too hard on this idea of what do you mean by making a measurement? Because if if we're a big person in a lab with some equipment and you have a little electron, everyone knows what you mean by making a measurement. But then could a single electron make a measurement of another electron? That's when the thing gets very tricky.
0: Okay, so there's a wave function and it describes a superposition of possible uh, measurement outcomes. But when we actually measure and look at the system, we only ever see uh, one of the outcomes with some probability. Uh, And how exactly is the probability related to uh, the underlying wave function?
1: So basically what the wave function is, is you give me what you're going to observe, Okay, So it's the spin, or it's the position, or it's the velocity. Like There's different sets of observables that you can imagine measuring and the wave function assigns to every conceivable measurement outcome a number. And this is called the amplitude for that particular measurement outcome. And then there's a rule that Max Born, um, famous German physicist, won the Nobel Prize for this. He invented the rule that says, the rule is you take the amplitude of the wave function corresponding to a certain measurement outcome and you square it and that gives you the probability. And you might ask, well, why don't you just work with the probability in the first place? Why do you ha- why do you take the square root of it to get the wave function? And the answer is that the wave function can be positive or negative. In fact, it can be, it's a complex number. So it can be the square root of minus one or minus the square root of minus one. And this is crucially important because different wave functions can combine and interfere with each other. If, if you had a positive contribution, it can be canceled out by a negative contribution. So it's really, really important that the wave function itself can be either positive or negative, but probabilities can't be positive or negative. They have to be positive numbers, or at least you know non, not less than zero. So the rule is you square the wave function to get the
0: probability. That's what we call the Born rule in quantum mechanics. Okay, that's super clear. Um, but you said if we go further, we already have to start assuming one interpretation or the other. So um, maybe at this point, could you spell out what's your kind of what's your take on the best um, answer to the measurement and the the reality problem that we can, like Sure. Go, go so on.
1: you know, just to just to sketch in the history a little bit, you know, uh, the birth of quantum mechanics maybe was around 1900 when Max Planck. First noticed that there were good reasons to treat electromagnetic waves in a particle-like way. Then Einstein in 1905 went even further, and then Niels Bohr and Louis de Broglie and a bunch of people said, well, maybe we can treat particles in a wave-like way. The whole thing finally came together in around 1927, and there were famous debates, right, between Einstein and Bohr, etc., and the only reason I'm recounting this is to say there were a whole bunch of people, really smart people at the time, 1927, who said, look, this is great, quantum mechanics, we're doing wonderful, but we're not done yet. It doesn't make sense yet. We need to work harder. And these people included people like Einstein and Schrodinger and other, you know, very, very smart people who had helped invent quantum mechanics. But Bohr and his friends, Heisenberg and Born and Pauli and others, uh, came up with these rules, which we've already discussed. The Schrodinger equation, when you're not looking at it, uh, and then there is this Born rule when wave functions collapse when you do look at it. And people like Einstein and Schrodinger weren't happy and they still, you know, mumbled about it. Einstein came up with his arguments about spooky action at a distance. Schrodinger came up with his Schrodinger's cat argument, but the whole physics community just ignored them, roughly speaking. They just went forward, they said, we're doing fine. And they, they labeled this interpretation, the Copenhagen interpretation, that's where Bohr's Institute was. And it really wasn't until the 50s where people started proposing alternatives to this interpretation. So one alternative, my favorite alternative, was proposed by uh, Hugh Everett, who was a graduate student at the time. And just because history is so wonderful, there was awkwardness because Everett's advisor was John Wheeler and Wheeler's mentor was Niels Bohr. So Wheeler was a huge proponent of the Copenhagen interpretation. And here's Everett, his student, basically saying, no, it's all nonsense. And they actually fought over that a little bit. But what Everett said was was basically, look, let's just at least imagine that we don't invent all of these crazy rules for what happens when you observe a quantum mechanical system. Because according to these rules, if I look at the electron, the electron is treated by the rules of quantum mechanics. But I am not treated. By the rules of quantum mechanics. In the Copenhagen interpretation, the observer is treated classically. And Everett says, look, uh, all the observers I know are made of atoms. and Atoms are supposed to obey the rules of quantum mechanics, so I think that observers should obey the rules of quantum mechanics also. And what the Copenhagen people would say in response to that was, look, if you treat the observer according to the rules of quantum mechanics, if there's a wave function that includes the observer as well as the electron, and you don't let wave functions collapse. You just obey the Schrodinger equation. Think about what's gonna happen. It's not true that if you have an electron that is in a superposition of spinning clockwise and counterclockwise and the observer measures it, they will see either one or the other. That's just not true. What happens is the combined wave function of the electron and the observer evolving according to the Schrodinger equation becomes a superposition of the electron is spinning clockwise and the observer saw it spinning clockwise, plus the electron was spinning counterclockwise and the observer saw it spinning counterclockwise. In other words, there there seemed to be this case where the observer is now themselves in a superposition of having seen the electron spin one way and the other. And so the Copenhagen people are like, that just doesn't fit the data. No one has ever thought that they were in a superposition after after they measured an electron, right? That's clearly wrong. And Everett's genius move was to say, what the mistake you're making is to think that that wave function is only describing one observer. Mm The wave function before the measurement was only describing one observer. But after the measurement, there are now two observers. Those two parts of your wave function of your superposition are now separate observers. They will—they can never communicate with each other. Anything that happens to one of them cannot causally impact the other. It's as if the whole universe has duplicated itself into two copies. And in one copy of the universe, the electron was spinning clockwise, and the observer saw it spinning clockwise, and the other universe, the electron was counterclockwise, okay. So Everett says you just don't need all of these weird rules about collapses and observations and probabilities. Just let the Schrodinger equation do its work. And if you accept the idea that you can evolve into many different copies of yourself, each of one, each one of which sees a different measurement outcome, then the bare bones quantum mechanical theory works perfectly well. And so this is now called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, and it's my favorite. But there are competitors, I'll have to say, which I'm happy to explain.
0: Okay, um, right. But before we move on to that, I guess I want to be a bit more clear about uh, what's happening in this Everettian picture. So, um, so what precisely is the act of measurement then in in this picture, where it's just uh, the wave function? Uh, and it's evolving according to the Schrodinger equation. Like where is the measurement taking place?
1: Yeah, so Everett solves the reality problem by saying that the wave function is an exact representation of reality. It's neither not enough, nor is it too much. It's exactly what reality is. And he solves the measurement problem by saying, look, uh, it was Einstein who showed in 1935 in the famous EPR paper, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, um, that there's this phenomenon called entanglement, in quantum mechanics, okay? So roughly speaking, what that means is that different subsystems of the universe can't be described separately, individually, in quantum mechanics. There's not a wave function for the electron and a wave function for you. There's one wave function for the universe, and it includes both you and the electron, okay? So that's entanglement. That's why we can have this case where the superposition is, electron was spinning counterclockwise and you saw it spinning counterclockwise and likewise for clockwise, because they're entangled with each other, okay? But furthermore, both you and the electron become entangled with the entire rest of the universe. And that's just because, you know, we're not alone in the universe, but I don't mean, you know, there's aliens out there. I mean, here in my office, there are photons of light, right? There are air molecules hitting me all the time. And if I have some apparatus that measures the electron and the apparatus has literally a pointer, that in fact, we, we talk about pointer states in uh, quantum foundations. So if there's a big arrow on my apparatus that says, oh, the electron was spinning clockwise, or oh, the electron was spinning counterclockwise, OK? So there's some big macroscopic part of the universe which becomes entangled with the electron and behaves differently depending on what the measurement outcome was that will instantly become entangled with all of the atoms and all of the photons in the box, in the, in the office or the lab or wherever you're doing it, because they keep bumping into the pointer. Okay, so that process of some quantum superposition being amplified up to the macroscopic world and becoming entangled with the rest of the world is called decoherence. And it's everywhere. Decoherence is just just a a ubiquitous process because the macroscopic world is constantly interacting with all the photons around it, all the air molecules, etc. So Everett Everett didn't use this language, but in, in my way of thinking about Everett's formalism, the measurement happens when a quantum system that is in a superposition decoheres, when it becomes entangled with its environment. And all of that is just described by the Schrodinger equation. It's not extra, it's inevitable. It's all part of the formalism already. You don't need to invent anything else to describe why uh, the wave function branches into these multiple copies.
0: Okay, so a quantum system is measured when it decoheres and when it becomes entangled with the rest of the world. And is it at this point where multiple worlds come into existence? Could you say a bit more about that? Why isn't there just a bigger world with that has different parts of the superposition, but it's still one world. Why does it make sense to talk about like many worlds?
1: Well, Um, that's an excellent question. And you know, uh, experts disagree about exactly that question. You know, where (laughs) in the many worlds interpretation do you draw the line between different worlds? Why do you call them different worlds? Things like that. Uh, So let me just be clear about one thing, you know, um, it's very similar to it's not completely analogous but there are similarities to statistical mechanics so in the in the 19th century people explained thermodynamics you know the science of heat and pressure and temperature and things like that they explained it in terms of statistical mechanics they said well really there are atoms and there are molecules and they're bumping into each other okay and what what that means is that to you and me we can describe, you know, a, a cup of hot water in terms of its macroscopic properties, right? It's, its temperature, it's pressure, it's uh, velocity, if it's moving, something like that. Or we could imagine the God's eye view or the Laplace's demon's eye view, right? Where we could see every molecule in the cup and give you every single uh, state of every molecule. Similarly, the, in many worlds, there is a God's eye view of what the wave function is doing. And it's obeying the Schrodinger equation. That's all it's ever doing. And there's no such thing as branches or splitting or worlds or any of that stuff. It's just the wave function doing its thing. But that's not what we see as people. Just like when you look at the cup of coffee or hot water or whatever, you don't see the individual molecules, right? There's a higher level emergent description. So this is why David Wallace, who is one of the leading uh, theorists of ever-writing quantum mechanics, entitled his book, The Emergent Multiverse. Uh, Because what he means is that all these different branches can be thought of, if you want to think of the world that way, you can think of the wave function of the universe as dividing into different branches, that is an allowed move that greatly simplifies how you can talk about what is going on in the world exactly as ascribing temperature and pressure and things like that to liquids or to gases is an allowed move. Even though it's not necessary from the God's eye view, it's a very computationally helpful move to make. And so the point about where and when and why the system splits into two different branches that describe two different worlds is simply we can do that. And the worlds evolve independently. That's the important physics point is that anything that happens in one world doesn't affect whatever happens in the other world? So, in philosophers' speak, you could imagine counterfactually poking one world, right, changing one aspect of the of one branch of the wave function, and saying, "What impact does that have on this other branch?" And then you do the math, and you see zero; it doesn't have any impact whatsoever. So we're allowed to talk about them as different worlds. And you know, I I, I do think that there's still maybe some good philosophical work to be done here in explicating exactly the general set of criteria under which we should talk about different subparts of the world as separate universes, but the Everettian branches of the wave function seem like an excellent example.
0: Right, okay, so the thought is the the key part is they, if I'm understanding that they're like causally isolated from each other, they couldn't in principle, affect each other, then it makes sense to label them as worlds. And a branch or a world is just the component of the wave function, that is like there a particular measurement outcome, plus the apparatus saw a particular measurement outcome and the environment was entangled with this particular uh, setup is the, and that's that's what we're calling a world here.
1: That's right. And so one of the things that Everettians themselves don't necessarily agree on is when you do that, when you're in your lab and you measure the electron, and so we all agree that when you measure the electron, the wave function branches, okay? There's a branch where it was spinning clockwise, a branch where it was spinning counterclockwise. What we don't agree on is should we describe that branching is happening instantaneously throughout the whole universe in someone's rest frame? Or should it only be confined inside someone's light cone? Should it spread out at the speed of light? Or is it really like hyper-local, and there's like a little patchwork of many, many different local branches? There's many different ways you could imagine uh, slicing up the wave function of the universe into different worlds and we don't yet agree. I have my opinions, but they're not very strong opinions. I'm happy to change them if someone has a much better argument. Uh, what, what is, what is nice slash frustrating is it doesn't seem to matter for anything observable. Uh, there's more than one way to slice up the universe into worlds where all the predictions for what observers should see are exactly the same.
0: So we can just take our pick whether the branching mm-hmm. happens locally or- um, As far locally. as I can tell, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Is there some sort of um, neat explanation for why it doesn't really matter for what we um, predict, why that these two are the same?
1: There's not a simple and neat explanation, no. But it's a true fact. Uh, it goes back to this uh, worry that Einstein had about spooky action at a distance, right? You can imagine two particles that are entangled with each other. So let's say you have two particles that are spinning and we know they're spinning in opposite directions. So if one of them is spinning clockwise, the other's counterclockwise, but we don't know which is which. They're in a superposition, okay, of, of both possibilities. And then you take one particle, you keep it here, you send the other one off into space, send it to Alpha Centauri, it's four light years away, okay? And then you measure the particle here and you go, oh, now I know my particle is spinning clockwise. So to you, you know instantly that that other particle, when it is observed, is going to be seen to be spinning counterclockwise, okay? So you might think, well, something happened to the particle instantaneously, even though it's four light years away, and that's what Einstein worried about. The problem is that your friend on Alpha Centauri, or in the spaceship, doesn't know what measurement outcome you got. So they don't know what the, that they're definitely going to get counterclockwise when they measure their particles. To them, it's still 50-50, right? So no information has been actually transported. And there's literally a theorem to this uh, uh, effect called the no-communication theorem, or no-signaling theorem in quantum mechanics. So our description of what happens involves things, signals, information traveling faster than the speed of light. But no observational outcome is affected by that description. Only, the only way to actually send signals or useful information is with ordinary classical communication slower than the speed of light. And that whole you know, proving that that's true, et cetera, et cetera, is actually quite a subtle thing. And people are, people are not clear about the following question. Is it weird that quantum mechanics lets you apparently affect things infinitely far away instantly fast, but it makes no difference observationally? Or is it weird that even though you can affect things instantly, for some reason, sending signals is only slower than the speed of light? <laughs> Which way does the weirdness actually go? So this is just you know part of the fun about thinking about the foundations of quantum mechanics. And honestly, all of this should have been figured out in the 1930s, but people uh, decided to turn their attention elsewhere. <laughs>
0: Um, so you mentioned this example in your book, but could you, so if I, if I have the entangled pair of particles and then the other one is four light years away, what if I just, uh, do something to force the measurement outcome of this particle to be spinning, uh, clockwise? So then I know, uh, the other one will be spinning clockwise. You say this doesn't, this doesn't actually get around this kind of no signaling th- theorem, but could you say a bit about why, like, why can't I just have this entangled pair and force the outcome so that I can like force the other one to also have the same measurement outcome.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is part of the innermost machinery of quantum mechanics is you can't force measurement outcomes. You can't decrease the uncertainty in one measurement outcome without pushing off uncertainty to somewhere else, Okay. So basically, you know, if you you look in the physics literature, you say, I have an electron, it's in a superposition, spin up and spin down. They will tell you how to force the electron to be spin up. okay? but what they're really doing is entangling that particle with another particle nearby and moving the superposition over to the other particle so that, sure, you're forcing your particle to be spin up but now it's entangled with yet another particle, which is still entangled with the particle very far away. So you can't get rid of the entanglement nearby without literally making a choice, you know, without measuring something that you didn't have the ability to predict ahead
0: of time. OK, that makes sense. So we on this Everettian picture, um, the measurement is just when the system decoheres and becomes entangled with the environment, and reality is just the wave function. Yeah. um but you mentioned at the start uh, if i'm understanding for all um for all versions of quantum mechanics there has to be this part about uh Schrodinger evolution and also uh the born rule when we measure it um but all this Everettian picture where where is this born rule part coming from it seems like everything is just um evolving deterministically and there's no uh probabilities of various outcomes they just they just all happen on some branch of the way function. So. Right,
1: so that's a very good leading question because I know that you know that <laughs> I write a lot about this in the book and I've written papers about it, et cetera. Um, yeah, this is, I think this is probably the most interesting question for Everettians. Um, Everettians are proposing that at the deepest level, the evolution of the universe is 100% deterministic. If you knew the wave function of the universe now and you knew the laws of physics, you could be Laplace's demon. You could figure out exactly what the wave function is going to be at any future time. But you say it will involve many copies of my future self, many descendants, let's say, many future versions of me, uh, all having seen slightly different measurement outcomes. So. The naive quantum mechanics thing is, well, one outcome is, let's say, 80% likely and the other outcome is 20% likely. But in Everett, there are two outcomes. They both become real with 100% likeliness, right? Like in the wave function of the universe, both of them are going to be real. So what does it mean? Is this question 80% or 20%, okay? So there's different strategies for attacking this. David Deutsch uh, and David Wallace Uh, pushed a strategy based on decision theory, and they tried to argue that a rational actor would always act as if, even though everything was deterministic, it was really stochastic, Okay, with exactly the Born rule probabilities. Um, Chip Siebens and I, uh, following work by Lev Weidman and other people, proposed a different way of thinking about it that I'm not sure if it's right, but it 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 makes me a little bit happier. Um, sort of emotionally about how to think about this stuff, because the decision theory stuff is formally very, very nice, but I I want more than just to say I should act as if this is a probability. I want to know why this is a probability. So here is our argument. Um, When that decoherence happens, when you measure the spin of the electron, it's either clockwise or counterclockwise, um, decoherence is really, really fast. So we're bringing in aspects of the actual real world. It's not just completely formal and mathematical. In the real world, the timescale for decoherence to happen—you know, once the pointer changes its position or whatever—is something like ten to the minus twenty seconds. It's like really, really fast compared to any human timescale. So no matter how quickly you look at the pointer, the universe will have branched much faster than you can realize which branch you're on. So by the rules of quantum mechanics, there will always be a little moment of time, a little period where there are two copies of you and neither copy knows which branch they're on, okay? So you can know everything there is about the universe and you know, I am one of two people and there are two people. One of them saw spinning clockwise, one of them saw spinning counterclockwise, but I don't know which one I am. So in that kind of circumstance, you need to assign a credence, a degree of belief to being on one branch or the other. It's exactly like everything else we do in life. When you say like, who's gonna win the basketball game tomorrow, or who's gonna win the presidential election? Or even, you know, where did I put my keys last night? Even things that, you know, there's 100% probability that some of some right answer, you did put your keys somewhere, right? But you don't know, so you assign probabilities in your head. We're saying it's like that, it's a subjective thing, it's a personal thing, that you're trying to do your best guessing where you are in the wave function of the universe. And the nice thing, so that move is the controversial one, okay? Like we're saying that the thing to do is to assign credences to being on different branches of the wave function, and you should do your best. You should try to be rational and try to be consistent over time and you know, invent a scheme for assigning credences that make sense. If you admit that that's what you should do, it's perfectly clear that what you should do is use the Born rule, is you should assign your probabilities by giving it to be the wave function squared. And we gave arguments for that, there's different arguments for that, but it's basically exactly what the theory wants you to do. In fact, as I say in the book, it's basically Pythagoras' theorem. These are all vectors (laughs) and the uh, hypotenuse is the entire wave function and the two different short sides of the triangle are the different branches of the wave function. So you square them to get the length uh, of the whole wave function. And that squaring is exactly just trigonometry.
0: It's nothing more complicated than that. Right. So the controversial move is that we should be assigning credences to different branches. And that's what the Born probabilities are, not that's right. What form they look, they should take. Um, OK, so when I first heard of this, I thought of it in terms of, OK, which so I'm I'm in the universe now, I'm gonna make some measurement outcome and I don't know which branch I'm gonna end up on. But you say that's the wrong way to think about it. It's rather after the decoherence has happened and the branching has happened, which branch am I currently on? Um, could you say a bit about what the difference between the two is? I, um, well,
1: yeah, so the the right thing to say is in the future, there will be multiple versions of me. What should each of those versions of me assign as probabilities to being on different branches? Uh, The idea of personal identity changes if you're in a branching universe. You know, we're used to thinking of world lines, right? In our classical upbringing in kindergarten, you were taught that you're a little world line going through space time and you're born and you move around and then someday you'll die. In ever quantum mechanics, it's more like a branching tree, right? There's one you that is born, but there's multiple copies of you being created all the time. You don't need to actually go into a lab and observe something. There's radioactive decays happening all around you all the time. So there's multiple branches being created. Uh, and so how should you think about who is you, right? Are you the collection of all those people or are you just one of them? Well, and I think that the right answer is you right now are just you right now. You, you do not include all of your other friends who are resulting from past branchings. But there's no such thing as the unique you that travels into the future. The you now will evolve into many people in the future. And the example, the analogy that I use is it's like identical twins, okay? Identical twins are different people. No one meets two identical twins and thinks of them as just two parts of one person. That would be insulting (laughs) to them, right? But they used to be one person. They used to be one little fertilized egg. They used to be the same cell, right? And so it's kind of like that, that a single person evolves into two or many, many, many multiple people. You should not think of yourself as the whole collection, nor should you think of your true essence as traveling down only one of the branches toward the future.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, but so on this view, the the probabilities are coming from the uncertainty about which branch I'm on, so I should assign credences. But does this give like the human observer a central role in quantum mechanics again, or like not a human observer but a rational agent? It's because from it doesn't really make sense for like inanimate objects to have like self-locating uncertainty or like credences. Right. So does this, does this mean that the born probabilities only sort of apply when there's a rational observer? And yeah, does that bring that like back into a central place? Well, the, I,
1: the way that I like to say it is the only place that observers ever appear in discussions of Everettian quantum mechanics is when you're asking questions about what observers observe. That's the only time. So the point about assigning these probabilities is you're exactly trying to answer the question, why is it that empirically scientists, when they do experiments, seem to get certain answers a certain fraction of the time and a certain fraction, uh, other answers another fraction of the time. If you're just rocks, if there are no scientists, then you just say, yeah, there's a wave function and it branches and the the wave function is the whole thing and you stop. Like you don't need to talk about probabilities. So rocks don't need to talk about probabilities, but individual observers do. And so the individual observers, it turns out, I believe, uh, need to be subjectivist about their probabilities. And in fact, thinking about it this way has made me a subjectivist about all probability. So I think that all probability theory uh, makes a lot more sense if you're just entirely subjectivist and Bayesian about it. And it fits in perfectly well with uh, quantum mechanics as well as everything else.
0: Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's not like we're. It's not like the theory itself is like privileging the observers. It's just just when we're thinking about okay, we're yeah. gonna go out and predict our uh, experimental outcomes. We better we better pick out the observers and think about what credences they should assign.
1: That's right. It's like if someone asked me, you know, what city um, uh, am I in right now? And I say Los Angeles, they don't get to say, well, are you privileging Los Angeles? <laughs> no, I'm like I just happen to be there. That's you asked me about me, so you didn't ask me about anybody else.
0: Right. Okay. Um, but I guess this, um, maybe you don't like to talk about this whole idea of um, like quantum immortality, but this l- leads so naturally, I guess I, um, I have to like ask this question. So um, on this view, then it sort of feels, so David Lewis had this, so this, according to this, um, the view you sketched out, the credences should be um, allocated across the branches uh, according to the Born rule. So, the, the, the probability that I assigned to be on a particular branch is just the amplitude of that branch squared. Um, but David Lewis had this modified rule where we just don't count the branches where uh, I'm not there anymore because there's no um, experimenter. And then I discount those, but it's not just a simple counting of the remaining branches. I still I discard those, but I still renormalize my credence according to um, the weights of the remaining branches where I'm still alive. Does, and does this seem this seems to work quite well with this um, self-locating uncertainty framework that you um, that you've sketched out, or does, or is that wrong? Does that not follow? Well,
1: I, I mean, I think it depends on exactly how far you want to push that. Um, if the question I'm asking is, what is the probability that I, or my future selves, let's put it that way, that future versions of me, my descendants in time, will see certain outcomes. If that's the question you care about, then you're perfectly welcome to uh, erase all of the branches where there are no future selves of me. They wouldn't matter anyway. I mean, they literally there's zero probability of me observing things on those branches by construction. Okay, so formally that kind of renormalization is perfectly fine. But then where it gets tricky is when people say, well, in that case, um, if I can imagine uh, uh, thought experiments where something slightly good happens to me, like someone gives me a dollar in, in one branch of the universe, and something terrible happens to me, like I get instantly killed. In another branch of the universe and they say well then you shouldn't you should be all in favor of doing that experiment because in all the future uh universes where you exist you get a dollar <laughs> you should be happy and i think that's completely wrong and the reason why it's completely wrong is that same logic would tell you that you shouldn't mind being killed in a classical universe because you're not going to be there to mind it right uh but the point is that we do mind imagining that we're going to be killed right? We mind right now the prospect of not existing in the future. And that's perfectly valid. That's part of what makes us a human being. And that applies perfectly well to Everett in quantum mechanics. I can be upset at not existing in future branches of the wave function in exactly the same way I would be upset if someone told me there's a 50-50 chance someone would kill me silently and, and quickly uh, tomorrow. You know, th- I don't like either one of those, whether it's a stochastic single universe or multiple branches of a uh, wave function.
0: Okay, and that makes sense. And I guess this sort of only goes through if you have this view where you're like the soul and you're following the branches and yeah. you, it's like picking at each point and you're saying, well, you said earlier that this is not exactly the right way to think that's about right. personal identity." Yeah. But, but if I'm understanding, so do you think it would be, so this renormalized um, credence assignment where I'm discounting the branches where there's no uh, observer, do you think that's allowed or do you think that's actually the rational, um, that's the rational assignment that we get when we think through the self-locating uncertainty or do we end up, or is it the born, um, or is it the credences according to the board rule?
1: Well, I, I think it's exactly dependent on precisely what question you're asking. Um, so there is no objective fact of the matter, what is the probability of the spin being up, right? There, In Everettian quantum mechanics, the, the there's a 100% probability that the spin will be clockwise on some branches and not on others, <laughs> OK? The only way the probability comes in is this in subjective place about what agents are going to believe when they're on these different branches. So if the question you're asking is, uh, what will I observe in the branches where I exist, then you're perfectly uh, allowed to do that renormalization and ignore the branches where you don't exist. That's okay. You can conditionalize on the existence of a future version of you. That's, that's fine. But if you But there's a different question you can ask, which is, what should I prefer now about possible future outcomes? Should I prefer now an outcome where there's a 99% chance that I'm dead in the branches and a 1% chance that I get a dollar? (laughs) Or should I prefer an outcome where I'm alive in all the branches? I can say with complete consistency that I prefer an outcome where I'm alive in all the branches.
0: Okay, Um, that makes sense. But the first one would be more relevant to thinking about predicting experimental um, outcomes when I measure things. Yeah, I'm but only, about,
1: but right? again, only if you are choosing to do experiments where you could easily die, <laughs> depending on what the outcome was. So I wouldn't, I would not advocate doing those experiments.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, that makes sense. I so, mean, so, sorry,
1: by the way, I I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm trying to have fun with it, but the other place where exactly this kind of question arises in a more pointedly, uh, Uh, cosmological way is in the anthropic principle, right? If you imagine that there are different parts of the universe which have different levels of hospitability to intelligent observers existing at all, then it does make sense when you're predicting what you see when you go out to look for the universe, look at the universe, to conditionalize on being in a part of the universe where observers are allowed, right? You know, you don't just say, well, I'm, I live in a random part of the universe. I live in a part of the universe which is hospitable to observers existing. No one is surprised that human beings live on the surface of the Earth and not the surface of the sun, even though the surface of the sun is bigger right? Because it's just not hospitable. That's a perfectly legitimate uh, anthropic conditionalization. Uh, so if you're trying to make sort of theory choice questions about cosmology, then you can absolutely sort of do that conditionalizing. Uh, I'm just saying that for your personal life choices, I would not recommend it.
0: Right. Well, I guess one final question on this, but this seems like it would it would predict a different probability distribution of experimental outcomes um, from just Using the Born rule. And the Born rule is the one that has been confirmed experimentally. Well, like, or maybe in all the experiments, does it make sense that in all the experiments so far, they couldn't adjudicate between these two ways of assigning credences? Because in all the experiments so far, the chance of the experimenter dying from this particle collision has just been like vanishingly small. So this renormalization, if you did it, you couldn't really tell the in practice probabilities of the experimental outcomes. I mean,
1: I think in my way of thinking about it is that there's no such thing as what the probabilities are really.
0: There are only
1: the probabilities observed by observers.
0: Right. Okay. yeah. Um, Okay. I I guess that makes sense. Um, So and do you think this is the major do you think this is the major sort of obstacle to getting everybody in quantum mechanics um, to be adopted by everyone, this notion of this question of how to derive probabilities.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, um, there are many, many people who don't like the Everettian formulation of quantum mechanics with different levels of sophistication about their knowledge of quantum mechanics in general. And they all have objections, but they're very different objections, depending on if they're, you know, people on the street, versus uh, highly credentialed philosophers or physicists. Um, I think that the probability worry that the figuring out why we observe the Born rule in empirical reality is the best worry to have among experts. And there are plenty of people who have that worry, but it's not the most popular worry among people on the streets. If you read, you know, bad reviews of my book <laughs> by people who don't like the Everett interpretation, they're not going to say he didn't derive the Born rule. They're going to say, ah, there's all these universes out there. I don't like it. Right. I mean, that's a much more visceral kind of thing. And that's actually what, what usually applies. So I encourage people to worry about the probability question. Uh, I discourage them from worrying about
0: there's just too many universes. I don't like it. Okay. And okay. I guess we've spent most of the time, uh, talking about everybody in quantum mechanics, but um, could you briefly sketch out what you, what you think are the plausible alternatives on offer in the literature and how, how they sort of differ um, from the view you've just sketched?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are basically three and a half good alternatives, uh, but I shouldn't say good. Popular alternatives, there's dozens of alternatives on the market, and, and most of them, I just don't know what they're saying. So for all I know, they could be good. But the three and a half popular ones are Everett is one of them, um, and Everett just says again, there's a wave function describing the world. It evolves according to the Schrödinger equation. That's all that ever happens. Um, there's also the pilot wave approach, which is, you know, is very logical. You can see why people would invent it because they're saying, look, you're telling me that the electron acts like a wave when you're not looking at it, but it looks like a particle when you look at it. So let's say that there are both waves and particles. <laughs> So in other words, they're saying the wave function is part of reality, but it's not all of reality, okay? It's just uh, you need to abet it, you need to to, um, include extra variables. We usually call them hidden variables, but proponents of the theory don't like that, because as they point out, they're what you actually see when you look. (laughs) It is the position of the electron in addition to the wave function, okay? Um, And then, so that's one, that's the second alternative. The third alternative is that wave functions really do collapse, so in both uh, the pilot wave theories, also called Bohmian mechanics or de broglie bohm in both that approach or in Everett, this whole collapse of the wave function thing is just a kludge, right? It's just a fudge factor to explain what human beings see. It's not really there. Everything is actually deterministic. So the third approach is to say that the wave function is all there is, but it does in fact evolve in two separate ways. It usually obeys the Schrodinger equation, but sometimes it collapses either truly randomly or when some condition is met objectively or something like that. So these are objective collapse models. Uh, Roger Penrose has one very famously. There's another one called the GRW model that people, and the great thing about these models is they're they're testable. You can look for wave functions objectively collapsing. And if they ever see that, uh, then they will know that Everett has been falsified. So Everett is completely falsifiable uh, in, in that sense. And the other approach, which I gave half credit to, uh, is, is a bunch of approaches called epistemic approaches. And they say, you know, the secret is it's sort of the real air of the Copenhagen interpretation, where you say the wave function isn't reality at all. The wave function is just a way that we individually assign probabilities to future measurement outcomes. So rather than treating the physical world as described by the wave function, they put observers, agents, uh, gathering experiences over time front and center in their way of thinking about the fundamental nature of reality. Um, and they can do you know, a lot of fancy math and prove theorems on the basis of this approach. The reason why I only give it half credit is because I, I cannot get a straight answer from them about what reality itself is actually supposed to be. So if it's not the wave function, if the wave function is just a way of predicting measurement outcomes, what is reality? And they get very poetic when you ask that question. And I I don't think, I think, you know, the the fair way of saying it is that they don't yet know, and it's just provisional, uh, which is perfectly okay. You know, that's very often true that when you develop complex physical theories, it's it's not done all at once. You do it uh, step by step. Um, But until they have a clear answer to to the question of what the real world is, I'm only going to give them half credit.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And so if you, as you said, these are not just sort of like oh, subjective interpretations that I can you know, think about. These are distinct uh, physical theories about what reality is um, and how it's described. So are there any exciting experiments that you think might um, change people's minds about various, these various um, formulations in the next few years?
1: Well, like I said, the objective collapse models clearly make different predictions than uh, the pilot wave or the Everett models, because uh, the dynamical equations are different. It's very, very nice. Uh, so in the pilot wave models, you still have the Schrodinger equation, but then extra equations. Um, whereas in the dynamical collapse models, you violate the Schrodinger equation sometimes. So that's a very testable thing. And like I said, if they if there are tests going on, don't ask me to give you the experimental details. That's not my... Uh, my knowledge base, really. Um, But people have tested these these models, and I'm not sure what the best experiments are, but they haven't seen the effects yet. But if they did, we would abandon uh, both Everett and pilot wave theories, because that's not what they say. Now, there's a big question about whether or not you can experimentally distinguish Everett from pilot wave theories. And so I think here, the conventional wisdom is no. They give you the same predictions. But there's a caveat there. Um, number one, people who believe in or, or proponents of the pilot wave theories often believe that Everett doesn't make any predictions because they don't think it solved the probability problem, right? So they're going to say that we're the only one who gets the, the predictions right. Um, but number two, the Everettian is going to say, look, in modern physics, the world is not made of particles. <laughs> it's made of quantum fields. And in fact, maybe not even quantum fields. Once you get to gravity, it's made of maybe something more abstract than that, because we don't even know what space-time itself is, OK? so. Unlike, so the, the approaches that you would have to take in Everett versus pilot wave theories are completely different once you move away from a simple model of particles, okay? Uh, for Everett, you just tell me what the fundamental degrees of freedom are, and it's plug and play. I just you know, plug them into the wave function, and I watch it go, and I get an Everett version. But the pilot wave theories need something for the pilot wave to push around, and that thing might be different from theory to theory. So, we are much less close to fitting modern physics, which has quantum fields and quantum gravity and all that stuff, into the pilot wave uh, framework. So, I'm not sure that they make predictions either. <laughs> so, I, I'm the conventional wisdom is that Everett and pilot wave theories make the same predictions, but I'm not. Convinced of that, and I, I I would encourage any young smart graduate students listening to this to really not just take that on uh, faith. To you know, there are there are theorems. People will trot out theorems that say here I can prove a theorem saying that under these assumptions the theorem the theories give the same predictions. But you should question those assumptions. You know, you should really dig into uh, how well established that idea is. Okay,
0: and the final point five the epistemic theories. If I'm understanding it. Uh, is it right to say that they're not currently at a state yet where they're kind of like offering experimentally uh, testable predictions of the theory that differ from the other theory?
1: As far as I know, no. I think I would know. Um, uh, I don't think so. I mean, in some sense, you know, all of these theories. If they gave very different experimental predictions, we would have known about it, right? I mean we would if they they would have been ruled out and we wouldn't be thinking about them anymore. So it, it's exactly this survivors bias that you were talking about, you know uh, in the uh, quantum immortality case, right? We're only paying attention to the theories that fit the data we have so far. So um, roughly speaking they better give pretty close experimental predictions. and so I think the same thing is true for these epistemic approaches.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So all things considered, what's your, Current credence that um, everybody in quantum mechanics is the right um, formulation.
1: I forget what my official number is, but it's so, it's pretty high. It's somewhere up like 95%. Oh,
0: uh, um, and so, and does this, is this the same conditional on us getting the final sort of uh, reconciliation of um, general relativity and quantum mechanics for all uh, regimes? Like, does this, underlying kind of quantum framework of there's a wave function and it um, obeys the Schrodinger equation, does this extend to all plausible theory, like candidate theories of everything? Or might we just, when we have the final theory, just like looks fundamentally non-quantum?
1: Yeah, I think this is a very good question. And it's a good reason why the pilot wave approach and the objective collapse approaches are not actually very popular among physicists. They're very popular among philosophers who work on the foundations of physics. And the way that David Wallace puts it is, you know, when a, when a philosopher comes across the problems of quantum mechanics, they instantly say, well, obviously we need better physics. And when a physicist comes across the problems of quantum mechanics, they instantly say, well, obviously we need better philosophy. <laughs> so in the Everett interpretation, You're not changing physics. You know, you still have the Schrodinger equation. It just evolves, et cetera. But maybe you need more philosophy to understand where the probability comes from or whatever. It's easy to imagine as an Everettian how to fit in future theories of physics. Whereas in the other approaches, uh, it's harder to imagine. And so I, I certainly grew up as a physicist. I am interested in understanding the origin of space-time and how to quantize gravity and what happened at the Big Bang and all of these questions. And to me, and this is not to everyone, so this is absolutely only me speaking. I'm not giving you the the judgment of the field. But to me, those questions are just much more promisingly addressed within an Everettian framework. I can see how. Uh, Even if I can't do it, I can see how there could be a route to understanding... The emergence of space-time and and things like that. Whereas in the others, I just you know it's this is already hard enough. You're making it harder for me if I need to invent new variables or new collapse rules or something like that. So uh, my own uh, bet, you know, you need to bet as a as a academic with your research choices. Um, I'm not actually that interested in comparing Everett to the other approaches. I'm interested in uh, provisionally taking Everett as the right way of thinking about quantum mechanics and working within that framework to understand physics better.
0: Okay, that's super clear. Um, I just have two sort of um, concluding questions since we're here I'm at the LSC Philosophy Society. I have to ask something more explicitly to do with um, philosophy. And in your book and in the discussion today, you've mentioned. Um, Topics that people might consider, like philosophical topics, like decision theory, the nature of probability. Um, Also in the book, you mentioned lots of things about philosophy, science, Occam's razor. So what, in your view, is the role that philosophy plays? Like, what do you what's your take on what philosophy is as a field? I know people disagree about this. And what's the relationship or what's the role it plays in answering foundational physics questions like um, foundations of quantum mechanics?
1: Yeah, no, I'm certainly someone who doesn't see a dividing line between physics and philosophy. I mean, many, you know, honestly, what I'm doing these days has a very strong philosophical component to it, um, the research that I'm doing. Um, And so, uh, you know, when I talk to uh, different people about the foundations of physics, I don't even know if they're in a physics department or a philosophy department half the time. And I end up insulting people one way or the other by guessing wrong. Uh, But I do think, you know... Uh, and i think that david wallace uh, you know in that that joke that i that i related uh, it really puts his finger on something you know if i if i were to be a little bit presumptuous and as someone who has mostly been a physicist give advice to philosophers the advice would be you know philosophers who are interested in foundations of physics seem to gravitate toward theories of physics that are really, really well defined, right? Like all the rules are laid out. um, There's no, there's no sort of fuzzy parts to them. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they prefer pilot wave theories, because at least if what you're describing are just point particles, obeying the rules of quantum mechanics, you don't come across these puzzling philosophical difficulties, like the probability problem in uh, in pilot wave theories. It's much more cleanly defined. And what Wallace says is, look, that's completely backward. You know, like we philosophers have a toolkit. We There's something we have to offer. What we should do is aim at those areas which are the philosophically fuzziest, right? Which are the least well-defined because maybe we could define them better. I mean, to me, Everett is on the physics level, perfectly well-defined. You have a wave function, it obeys the Schrodinger equation. <laughs> what could be easier than that? The interesting questions about it are questions of emergence and probability and personal identity and experience. These are all philosophy problems, right? Philosophers should love the Everett interpretation. It's full employment for them. So that's what I encourage them to think about.
0: OK, great. So all our listeners can go out and think about Everett and quantum physics. OK, uh, Carl, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Eric, thanks very much for having me on. It's a lot of fun.